Well, welcome, everyone. Glad that you're here. If you're uh, still out in the lobby and uh, trying to find a seat, just want to remind you that there's an extension uh, three miles down the road. The service there uh, will start in about 15 minutes, so you'll catch it all. Same music, same message. The only difference is, is at the extension, I'm in high definition. And so you're welcome for that. Seriously, you're welcome. And encourage you to uh, catch that. That's open every weekend. And uh, take advantage of it. Try it out sometime. You'll, you'll love it. Well, happy Easter. And it's, uh, it's a blast being together. Thank you guys for coming out. And I love this time of year. I, I love kind of the celebration of Easter. I actually love remembering uh, Jesus' passion for us, his suffering for us. I love what communion uh, teaches us through all of that. And so grateful that our Lord lived and that he suffered and that he died. And of course, uh, today, remember that he rose again, that he is indeed God and we can trust him and love him uh, for those things. So love it. Love this time of year. I love the spring. The sun's out. Only in Northeast Ohio would, would you look and say, oh, praise God, it's 46. You know, we're just grateful. Whatever we can get, Lord, we're grateful for it. Thanks. And I love, I love uh, everything about this. I love baseball. It's a passion of mine, something I love to listen to and watch and played over the years. So when, when like the smells of spring come out, it takes me back to to my youth. One of the things that I love about baseball is baseball is famous for batters who have called their shot over the years. I don't know if you've ever heard that term before, but in baseball, every once in a while, a guy will have the courage to step to the plate and he'll take his bat, he'll tap the plate a couple times, and then he'll call his shot, he'll point. He'll point the bat to the part of the field that he's going to hit it out of. So Babe Ruth was famous for that. He tapped and he pointed and he called his shot. Kirk Gibson did it in the 80s. He, he tapped and called his shot. My friend Jason Haymaker did it when we were in high school. He tapped the bat. He called his shot. We were, uh, we were at baseball practice. I don't know if I ever told you guys, but I played a little JV baseball when I was in high school. Four years worth of it. Last night, a guy asked me, he goes, so you started JV for four years? I'm like, hang on. I never said I started. I just said I played it. And so we were at uh, we were at baseball practice one time in the spring. It's this time of year it's cold, muddy, and all those kind of things. And Jason actually is a very accomplished athlete, and he was one of the best hitters in the city. And I was one of the worst pitchers in history. And we were I was throwing batting practice. And this particular day, I just happened to be throwing strikes, which was a bit of a miracle for me. I was better known for sending people to the hospital by hitting them with the baseball. And so I just happened to be on fire this day and, and uh, was striking him out. He couldn't hit me. So we got the mouth and back and forth a little bit. And uh, he said, I can't believe you're throwing strikes. And I'm like, I can't believe you're missing them. I was like, I yelled over, I said, get, get a seat warm for Haymaker. He's going to be sitting down for a minute. And he went back and forth. He's like, I'm going to hit you. And I'm like, use your nose. Jason has this enormous nose. Think of like a sail or perhaps a rudder or beaker, right? Just this huge, huge nose. I'm like, hit it with your nose, hit it with your nose. And he's like, you're an idiot. And so he finally looked at me and he did it. He, he, he called a shot, he tapped the plate and he goes, throw me your best fastball, he tapped the plate and he goes, I'm gonna drill you with it. And he pointed the bat right at me. He said, throw me your best stuff, I'm gonna drill you right in the rear end. He didn't say it quite like that. He talked about depositing the ball in a certain part of my body, but he, he was like, I'm going to drill you right in the rear end. And so I did. I reared back and I threw the best I could throw, fastball down the middle, which is exactly what you want to do with a great hitter, and left it hanging out there. He turned on that. 
hit it. In high school, you play with an aluminum bat. When you hit with an aluminum bat, the ball comes off the bat three times faster than it went into the bat. So he drilled this ball, just came screaming off the bat, flew and hit me right in the left cheek, man. Hit me, my cheek swelled up instantly. I was hopping around, I was screaming, yelling for help, crying for my mom. He just fell on the ground laughing, right? My coach fell on the ground laughing, the team fell on the ground laughing. I needed medical attention. I needed like CPR, a flight life or something, you know, nothing. So he harasses me about that all the time. 30 years later, he's like, hey, remember that time I hit you with a baseball? I was like, yeah. I said, my swelling has gone down, but you still have the sale, Jason. You still have that huge, surgery is your friend. There's people who can help, but he won't, he won't listen to me. No, anyways, I just love baseball. That's all I was trying to say. And happy Easter. And that's why we're here today to celebrate what God did and how he did it and why he did it. Let me show it to you in the book of Luke. Grab your Bibles if you got them and go to Luke chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible, there's some there in the chairs. It's page 737. And those Bibles, if you don't have a Bible or a newer copy of the Bible, please just take one of those with you and keep it. We'd love for you to have it, put your name in it. If you use an electronic device, we use the version app. The version app, version. hit live on that app. And it's 44333, that's our zip code. We're Grace Church. Luke chapter 24, verse one. Here it is. This is one of the accounts of Jesus' resurrection on the first day of the week. Very early in the morning, the women took the spices that they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they entered, they did not find the body of Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you that this while he was still with you in Galilee. The son of man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered his words. And when they went back to the, back from the tomb, they told all those, all these things to the 11 and all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with him who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense. Peter, however, got up, ran to the tomb, bending over. He saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. He went away wondering to himself, what had happened. And what had happened was Jesus raised again from the dead. This is the most pivotal event in the history of humanity. It is a unique event in that it changes human history and the same event changes my personal history. When I engage and believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it alters my life path as well. And the resurrection is this massively big deal. Now, to a Christian, the resurrection is a very, very unique thing because Christianity sets apart from other religious systems and ever other philosophies and worldviews in that we do not believe that our prophet or our teacher or our philosopher is dead. Christianity at its very, very core actually, now hear me out here, actually is not built around the teachings of Jesus at its very core. It's actually not drawn simply from the Bible at its very, very core. Christianity at its very, very core, if you boiled it down to its most uh, centralized component, 
Christianity is not built around theology and doctrine. Christianity is built off of an event. It's the event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that sets Christianity apart. If you pull the resurrection of Jesus out of Christian thought, Christian doctrine, Christian theology, then Christianity just becomes one of a sea of opinions. If you pull the resurrection of Jesus away from Jesus, then he, like Buddha or Confucius or Muhammad or whoever, is honestly just another dead prophet who thought thoughts that people remember. Even the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, said, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then everything we believe is foolishness. We're all wasting our time. Why are we even here if there is no resurrection from the dead? You pull the resurrection of Christ out and you lose it all. Now you put the resurrection of Christ back in and all of a sudden now, there's a reason why we listen to Jesus and accept his words as truth. Because we would look and say, it's the resurrected Christ. Jesus had all these thoughts, he did all these miracles. He's not the only religious teacher who had thoughts and he's not the only one who claimed to do miracles. He's the only one who claimed to have risen again from the dead. So we would look and say, yeah, these thoughts and these miracles, the validity that's given to them is that they were done by God. Well, how do you know he's God? Because he rose again from the dead. That's what God does. And because he rose again from the dead, those thoughts become truth. They become governors for life. Because he rose again from the dead, all the theology or all of the, the school of thought around who God is all of a sudden becomes the words of God. The Bible is spoken by God. The reason we believe the Bible, the, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the beginning and the, the second part of it, is because Jesus believed the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the reason we believe Jesus is because he rose again from the dead. So it's huge. So everything revolves around that event. If you boil it down to its very, very core, it's the event of the resurrection of the dead that defines a Christian as a Christian. And that's what the early church locked into and what the uh, early disciples locked into. They were tied into this event and that was <clears throat> so much true of them that they got stereotyped for it. So people would look at them and say, boy, those, those people over there, they believe everything Jesus said. They, they, they follow his, what he said like to the letter. They copy Jesus. They live like Jesus. They go around quoting Jesus. You know, what they, you know what they actually think? They actually believe that Jesus rose again from the dead. Those people, they're just, they just act like, talk like, think like, love like Jesus. They're just a bunch of little Jesuses running around. They're a bunch of little Christs is literally where that term came from. Christians. Christians. And Christianity, being called a Christian, was not a title that you would put on yourself. Jesus never used the word Christian once. The disciples never used the word Christian once. They, they never called themselves that. Being a Christian is what other people labeled you. They would look and say, man, those guys, they just, they act like Jesus is God. And they just believe that and they just think and everything and, and they would look and say, yeah, they, they would stereotype you. They would be on the outside looking and say, they're, they're Christians, they're just little Jesuses, they're Christians, right? 
And we still do this today. We stereotype each other. So people would look into a football team, for instance, say, they're just a bunch of jocks, right? They would just stereotype them. Jocks would look at kids in the National Honor Society. They're just a bunch of geeks and nerds. And be careful, jocks, because you're going to need a job from those people one day. I'm just saying, work your friendships well, right? It's like somebody from Michigan looking at Ohio and be like, they're just a bunch of national champions down there, you know? (laughs) It's just a stereotype. If you can hang, you can hang, you know? So it's a, but that's what it was. It was people on the outside looking at followers of Christ saying to them, they're just a bunch of Jesuses, little Christ. They act like, they talk like, they think like, they love like, and they believe that he rose again from the dead. And they would pick that up and be kind of accused, so to say, of that. Now, Christianity today is very different than that, generally. Today, Christianity is associated more with a subculture and a religious belief system. So today, somebody else, we don't, we don't usually get accused of being a Christian. We usually say, I am a Christian. We would grab that title and put it on ourselves. That's why there's such a variety of people who would call themselves a Christian. Kim Kardashian calls herself a Christian. Mother Teresa calls herself a Christian, right? Because we have moved that term around, and it's not this big sin, it's just the way that things have worked, and we've adopted that for ourselves, and we'll self-identify. And when we say I'm a Christian, what we generally mean is I participate in a subculture. I I kind of act a certain way, I think a certain way, I have certain habits in my life, Uh, there's certain holidays that I celebrate. Maybe if you're really into it, you're like, I listen to Veggie Tales, I listen to The Fish, I have Christian breath because I eat Testaments, right? It's like, we would grab that, or we'll use it as a term to identify what we're not, right? So are you a Muslim? No. Are you a Buddhist? No. Are you a Hindu? No. Are you Jewish? No. I'm a Christian. So we would, we would identify ourselves in that way. And that's not where the term came from. Christian was a label that you got. It was a group that you were thrown into. At times, it was an accusation. You are just like Jesus. You believe everything Jesus believed. See, at times, it was an accusation. Where now, it's more of a subculture. So when Jesus was talking about having followers. He wasn't talking about people who participate in a subculture or religious system. You'll never, really, you'll never hear him talk about that. When Jesus talked about having followers, he would use the term disciple. I want you to be my disciples. The disciples would identify themselves as disciples of Jesus. And then in Jesus's great mission statement, he says, go and make disciples, we would use the words Christ followers. And it's a very different definition than Christian. Jesus, when it says, when he talks about having disciples, he actually sets the bar for being one of his disciples very high. The bar for being a Christian is very low, but Jesus sets the bar for being a disciple through the roof. Now, this is what a disciple is. I just put this definition down for you. A disciple is one who, is, who loves, follows, and is completely devoted to his master. I love, I follow, 
and I'm completely devoted to my master. And you're gonna see here in a minute that when Jesus sets the bar for his followers, that's the bar he's setting. Do you love me? Do you follow me? And are you completely devoted to me? Grab your Bibles again, flip back to the left to the book of Matthew chapter 10. In Matthew chapter 10, this is one of the places that Jesus sets that bar. And I'm gonna read this to you. And as I read it, I want you to remember, every word we're gonna read is Jesus's word. So this is unfiltered. This is Jesus unplugged, right? And this is him describing what it would be like to follow him and what it kind of takes to be called one of his followers. And what he's doing here in Matthew chapter 10 is he's sending his disciples out, those who love, follow, and are completely devoted to him, to start telling other people about him. And this is one of the first times he does that. And he says this, he's like, this is the way it's gonna play. Verse 16, chapter 10, Matthew. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to local councils and be flogged in the synagogue. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when, and that interesting, he doesn't say if, <laughs> when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death. The father, his children. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly, I tell you, you will not finish going through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Look at verse 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Verse 32. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. That one doesn't seem like it'd be that hard to do, really. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their their life for my sake will find it. Yikes. And we hear that. And to our Western ear, that almost sounds cultish. You don't love me more than your family. You're not worthy to follow me. What? If you're not willing to lay your life down, you're not worthy. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to suffer. You're going to be hurt. You're going to be beaten and fall. You're going to, people are going to hate you. Jesus was not a good marketer. <laughs> but he looked and he said, these are my followers. Now for us, we might think, well, wait a minute, that's not the Jesus I grew up with. The Jesus I grew up with is going to hunt Easter eggs with us this afternoon and play soccer and watch a veggie tale, right? 
So we would say, well, that doesn't sound like Jesus. And I would look back at the Bible because those are all his words. And I would say, actually, that sounds exactly like Jesus. What it doesn't sound like is Christianity. Jesus looks and says, yeah, I call you to be my followers. And when you love me and follow me and you're completely devoted to me, people are going to know it. You're not going to have to say a word. You're going to stick out. In fact, you're going to get labeled. You're going to get stereotyped. That's one of those people that is so into Jesus. And in the Bible, his followers were not men and women who were looking for tips for better living. They weren't looking for life hacks from Jesus. These were people who listened to Jesus' teachings. They saw his miracles. They experienced friendship with him. And they were completely devoted to him. And they were there in John chapter 10. Let me read this to you, show you something. John chapter 10, verse 16, or 17, 18, it's up on the screen. Jesus again, all his words, ready? For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to, authority to lay down and I have authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Jesus' disciples heard him say that. And they looked at him and said, wait a minute, we have seen his power. We have heard his teachings. We have experienced his friendship. We have witnessed his miracles. And we just heard Jesus, ready? Call his shot. He tapped a plate. You know what's going to happen? I'm going to lay my life down. I'm not going to be caught up in a political firestorm. I'm not a victim of history. I'm not a legend. I'm not a myth. I'm deciding to do something. And you know what else? I'm going to pick it up again by my own authority because I am God. He called a shot. And the Little Christ, the Christians, the Christians, the people who were labeled were people who looked and said, oh, we believe that. We believe everything he says. We've seen the miracles. We believe everything he tells us about his affection for us. We felt his friendship. We've heard it. We've seen it. And he just called a shot. And we are choosing to believe that he is God. Now, Imagine the crisis of faith when the whole Easter event plays out. So here they are. They believe that he's God. They believe he's going to set them free. They believe he can do anything. They, they heard him call a shot, and they're thinking to themselves, yeah, we're in on this. We are, we are disciples. We follow. We love. We're fully devoted. And then they're there when he gets arrested. <clears throat> they're there when he goes before a sham of a trial in front of Pilate. They're there when he's beaten by the Roman guards. They see the whip with the bone and the glass and the metal lodge into his flesh. They saw his ribs exposed. They saw his spine exposed. They knew that an ordinary person would not even have survived the beating. 
Then they heard his screams when they pushed the crown of thorns on his head and it affected all the nerves around the skull so that his hands and his feet felt like they were on fire. Then they watched the robe be draped around him, saw him paraded in humiliation up to Golgotha, watched him be sped upon, watched him be mocked, saw the robe ripped off him after the blood had had hardened on it, and so all those scabs were reopened, saw his raw rib and his raw spine slapped onto that cross, then the nails, then hanging in humiliation, then he bleeds out. Finally, his body fills his lungs with fluid and he suffocates on the cross. And then they take his body down. They witnessed all of it. And there was not a question in their mind of what had just happened because they saw it. They knew Jesus didn't just pass out and three days later, like, oh, I feel better now. They knew he wasn't in a coma. They knew that he was dead and good and dead and there was no blood left in him. And they took down his body, which is now just this hunk of mangled flesh and they borrowed a tomb and they put him in it. And the crisis of faith happened because all of a sudden, all of their theology and all of his teachings and all of his ideas were invalidated. He's dead. He called a shot and he struck out. And it freaked them out so badly that when their friends went to the tomb with spices, they went to the tomb of spices. That's an important little detail because what they were doing is they were going to keep and preserve his body. You take spices. They weren't going to the tomb thinking, oh, it's day three. Let's go see if Jesus woke up. They think he's dead. It's the same way that we would embalm someone or we would approach a funeral. They're not expecting a resurrection. They're going there to deal with a dead body that's starting to decay. And when those women go to the tomb and he's not there and they interact with those angels and they go back and they tell the apostles that Jesus is risen from the dead, they didn't believe them. They thought they were talking nonsense. They wouldn't believe their friends who saw it and interact with the angels. So finally, Jesus was like, I guess I'll have to go there myself. And you go back to Luke chapter 24, flip back over there in the Bible. So here they are, they're, they're held up in this upper room. The door is barred. The Bible tells us in another place in the detail. They're locked in. They're afraid. They're, they're afraid that they're going to be next because they've been identified as Christians. So verse 36, chapter 24, while they were still talking about this, talking about what? Talking about what happened to his body. Did the Romans steal it? Are they gonna come next to us? Was that a knock on the door? Don't answer it. What if they find out we're here? As they're having that conversation, while they're still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Jesus appears in the room. This is my favorite Jesus stuff. If I was Jesus, I would do this stuff all the time just to mess with people because they're all there freaked out and scared. Jesus shows up, he's like, peace, <laughs> be with you, right? I mean, he just walks in. The Bible says he is, they are startled and frightened. What is going on? Thinking they saw the ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It's I, myself, touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet 
And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it in their presence. Look at this, ready? Verse 44, and he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Don't you remember? I called my shot. I told you I was gonna raise again from the dead. I told you this is what is gonna play. Do you remember this now? Everything must be fulfilled that's written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the psalm. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sin will be preached in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. And when these guys are interacting with the resurrected Jesus Christ, they are not interacting with their life coach. They are not interacting with the philosopher that has some good thoughts. They're not interacting with a fuzzy Jesus in a Thomas Kincaid painting. They are interacting with their risen Lord and Savior that they had walked with, talked with, seen, died, buried, heard him call his shot, and now he's alive and well. And they witnessed it. In fact, the Bible shows us that over 500 people were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, they saw him dead and then they interacted with him after he was alive. You take 500 eyewitnesses to court today and you will win that legal case. And it's not just the Bible. Roman history speaks of it as well. Several of the emperors of Rome talk about these Christians, these little Christs. They go around, they're talking about Jesus all the time. They won't shut up about Jesus. They believe he rose again from the dead. And they got labeled because they were weird. It was cultish what they did. And at the core of Christian thought and belief is not a philosophy, it's not even a book, the Bible. At the core of Christian thought and belief is an event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So much so that the Bible says that when we believe that Jesus is God and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And a Christ follower, a little Christ, a Christian, is someone who's a disciple of Jesus. They love, they follow, and they are fully devoted. And it's not a cult because in Christian thought, healthy Christian thought, we're not drawing people to a man. I'm not trying to get you to follow me. I want you to follow God, the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not, it's a terrorism they're willing to die for their faith and there's a sword, Jesus says. It's not terrorism because the commands of Jesus are rooted in love and grace, not in hate. He doesn't say go blow up people that don't agree with you. He says weird stuff like this. If somebody hates your guts, love them. Pour coals of kindness on their head. Love the way that you have been loved. Forgive to the degree that you've been forgiven. Lay your life down to reach someone else. Take everything you have and give it to the poor and spread the gospel, the good news. That there's a God who loves you, who came for you, who lived for you, who died for you, and who rose again for you. He called a shot. And he delivered. See? 
And they saw it. And they locked in. And they were unyielding. The Roman emperors talk about when the plague came through Rome, how all the secularists left because they're afraid of death. All these pagan religions, they, they left because they're afraid to die. Their religion was about improving their life and getting prosperity from their gods. So when death swept through the city, they all ran out of the city. You know who stayed? The Christians did. Why did they stay? Because a Christian isn't afraid to die. We're not afraid to die. We know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So they stayed and they took care of all the poor, all the sick, all the dying. It's how Christianity got its root in Rome until the Roman government finally made it the official religion of the Roman state. Because the Christians would do weird stuff. Like they would stop and interact with a broken person. They would stop and give compassion to someone who was hurting. They would love you even though they didn't even know you. They just kept acting like Jesus all the time. And they, you know what those guys believe? They believe Jesus rose from the dead. You know what they, they believe that they're gonna raise from the dead one day and be with Jesus forever. They're not afraid to die. They're so locked into Jesus that they got stereotyped. They got labeled. At times, being a Christian was an accusation but it was never something that you called yourself. It was a reputation that you got for acting like, talking like, thinking like, and loving like your risen savior, Jesus Christ. So the Easter question is an interesting one. The Easter question is not a question of whether you'll start going to a certain church. Jesus never asked that question. The Easter question is not a question of behavior. Will you, will you stop being a naughty boy and start being a good boy, a good little Christian boy? It was never the issue. The, the Easter question was never about conformity. The Easter question at its very, very core is, will I by faith believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And that's what faith is. Faith is choosing to believe in what I cannot and will not understand. I know that. It's not a mystical decision. It's not an uninformed decision. It's a decision to walk kind of hand in hand into the unknown with God. Actually, it's a lot like marriage, the Bible says. When Heidi and I got married years and years ago, we put faith in each other. We had no idea what we were getting ourselves into. Nobody does when they're 22, we put faith in each other and we said, here's our faith. We are choosing to believe in each other. We're choosing to walk into the unknown together. And that's what it, part of what it means to have faith in Christ. I can't explain the resurrection. I can't make it make sense. It's not gonna add up in a textbook. But I'm choosing to believe that Jesus is who he said he is. And the validity of his teachings and the base of his authority is not his moral superiority. It's his resurrection from the dead. That he conquered death and sin. And it's God reaching out to me. So what do you do with the resurrection? Right? It's not what religion, it's not what team you cheer for. 
What do you personally do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Do I look and believe that a God of love sent his only son? That that son lived perfectly sinlessly on earth. That he died innocently and he died paying the price for my sin. He died in my place. And he didn't just die because lots and lots of good, moral, smart people have done that. But he, by his own authority, overcame death in the grave and rose again. Now that question has to be answered. It's not one of those life questions that can kind of linger out there because it becomes a yes or no thing. Either yes, I believe that, or no, I reject it. And if I look and say, you know what, I just don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then I've rejected the central core and I've made Jesus one of the other great moral teachers and philosophers that sometimes brings good thought and opinion, some life direction into my life. And lots of people do that, right? And it's a, it's a decision that we make. If the answer is yes, I choose to believe that and accept it by faith, well, now we're talking about interacting with God. It's a very different conversation because if God can overcome death and bring himself back to life, then he has quite a bit of authority and say in who I am and what I do. And if I believe that, that God's not out to get me, if God was gonna get you, he would've got you by now. If he can raise himself from the dead, he can hit you with a bolt of lightning or get you transferred to Michigan, right? I mean, he can make your life miserable. He's not out to get you, he's out to love you. Remember, not only did he, by his own authority he raised again from the dead. Don't forget, by his own authority, in his own initiative, he laid his life down. The lamb of God that was slain, the king of kings that laid his life down. Those are ways that the Bible talks about it. That's Jesus loving you, wanting to be connected to you. That's why he did everything that he did. And if I can accept his resurrection, then all of a sudden I can start to accept his love. And that's kind of the doorway, so to say, to salvation then. So that's the big question. Now, what do we do with all this? Here's what I would kind of walk you through. First of all, if you're hearing all this today and it's tugging at your heart in a different way and if, if this is happening, then you know what I mean. You're like locked in and it's making sense and you're almost emotional and your heart's kind of, Peter Patton a little bit, and you're like, man, what in the world? What that, there's something spiritual happening to you, and there's nothing weird or mystical about that. It's just, the Bible talks about it. It's God in his kindness reaching out and saying, hey, I really want you to know this because I really love you, and I'd love to be connected with you. And the Bible says that God will do that at times. He'll reach out, and he'll kind of interact in your heart and in your life in a certain way, and, and we, would, we would tend to describe that emotionally. I know my heart's flipping out, or I'm, I'm kind of a little misty-eyed, or I'm just dialed in for some reason, this makes sense to me. And if that's happening to you right now, then that's God reaching out and loving you, and what I encourage you to do is respond to God right now. You can pray, tell God, Jesus, I believe in my heart, that you are the only source of the forgiveness of my sin. It's what you said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. Nobody goes to heaven except through me. And if you're God, you can say that and it's true. And I need that foundation and I want that salvation and I long for that hope. 
And the Bible says when we feel that, if we will confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and we believe in our heart that God raised from the dead, we will be, and the Bible uses this word saved. We often say forgiven. And that's how you become a follower of Jesus Christ. And that will alter your life. I did that when I was a junior in high school. And I had this, I was thinking about God and I had a little pitter patter and everything I just described, that was me. And I asked God and he changed my life and he'll do that now. You don't have to say a magic prayer. You don't have to join the church, you don't have to do anything like that. But from your heart to God's heart, don't worry about your words, God knows what you mean. But you need to accept him as a risen Lord and Savior now and that's why you feel the way that you feel. Now for others of us, we, we are not there yet. And what God has done is, is maybe he hasn't opened up our heart as much as he's opened up our mind. And we're thinking this all through, which is totally cool. So what we did here is we came up with three different ways that you can have that conversation with us. If none of these three ways are good for you, then have it a different way. There's nothing spiritual. It's just what we could think up and we're simpletons. So that's what, what we could invent, right? So here's the three ways. If you wanna keep talking about whether Jesus is God or not and the ramifications for you uh, on your life. And if you've been frustrated and disillusioned by all the noise, right? Jesus is very appealing. Christianity is very frustrating. If you would like kind of the raw Jesus, there's three ways that we came up and we'd love to have this conversation. One is those connection cards. If you'd like to sit down one-on-one -on -one or two-on-one -on -one over a cup of coffee, and sit down with one of our pastors, our leaders here at Grace, and just figure that out and talk it through and start brainstorming it and learn from the Bible. Take out that connection card, say that. I'd like to explore Christ, or I wanna take the next step in my faith and talk about it. Give us some kind of contact information, your phone or Twitter or whatever, something that we can get a hold of you, right? And next week or so, we'll get a hold of you, one-on-one, -on -one, if you wanna bring a friend, bring a friend, whoever, We'll buy you a cup of coffee and we'll sit down and we would love to investigate that with you. Now, if that's intimidating, there's a second way. The second way is to jump into a group of people who are doing that. And we talked earlier about these discovery groups. The, the info is in your program there. And we wanna invite you to a discovery group. And the first group, the first meeting we have is in this room. I teach it. And it's a big group of us. And we talk about what God's actually like and what he actually wants from us. We'll also tell you about the church if you wanna know about the church. And then after that first meeting, you break into a group of 10 or 15 people and you hang out with one of our pastors for five or six weeks. You meet here at the building. We'll watch the kids for you when you're in your meeting. And you can ask all those questions. We can talk back and forth, right? So that's the second thing. So you can sign up for one of those. And then the third option, you might just look and say, oh, that's a little too much for me, but I'm open-minded. Third option is maybe just decide to come to church for the next four weeks. Because the next four weeks, we're gonna talk about what it means to be a follower of Christ, and we're gonna use the words of Jesus, right? So not church history, not subculture stuff. What does Jesus actually say? And if you wanna come and just hang out, grab your girlfriend or your husband or whoever and, and come and hang out here, and we'll be having this conversation. And I'll, I'll walk you through the words of Jesus, right? And, and we'll do that. It's a great time. The band will be here. And I honestly, I look this good all the time. So you're welcome, right? The scenery is fantastic and, and we'll have fun together and we'll investigate that with you. 
Now, if you got a friend or you got your dad or your mom or whoever, do that, right? The point is act on it. Those are the three ways we could come up with. The point is answer the question. It's kind of a yes or no, right? Investigate it, run it to ground, answer it. That's what these guys did. They hung out with him. They heard him. They saw him. They were friends with him. They watched him die. And then they interacted with him after he rose again from the dead. And they looked and said, you know what? He called a shot. I will give my life. I will follow love and be completely devoted, not to a man or a leader or a teacher, but God, the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us as I do the band will come out. We'll enjoy the rest of our time. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for coming to us. Thank you for loving us, Lord. Lord, I'm so grateful for that. All I ever heard growing up was how mad you were at me. And nobody, nobody told me how much you love me. I'm just so grateful for that, God. So grateful to see your determination, your passion to make a way for us to know you and then all the joy and the wonder of life that you give us because of that, Lord, and just unbelievably humbled and grateful for it. Thank you for your willingness to suffer, for your willingness to die, to pay the price for our sins. And thank you that you rose again and that we serve and worship and follow a risen Savior. We love you, Jesus. Thanks for loving us first. It's in your name we pray. Amen.